Today's scripture reading comes from Matthew chapter 6, verses 19 to 34. Do not lay up for yourselves treasures on earth where moth and rust destroy and where thieves break in and steal. But lay up for yourselves treasures in heaven where neither moth nor rust destroys and where thieves do not break in and steal. For where your treasure is, there your heart will be also. The eye is the lamp of the body. So if your eye is healthy, your whole body will be full of light. But if your eye is bad, your whole body it will be full of darkness. If then the light in you is darkness, how great is the darkness. No one can serve two masters, for either he will hate the one and love the other, or he will devote to the one and despise the other. You cannot serve God in money. Therefore I tell you, do not be anxious about your life or what you will eat or what you will drink, nor about your body, what you will put on. Is not life more than food, and the body more than clothing? Look at the birds of the air, they neither sow nor reap, nor gather into barns, and yet their heavenly Father feeds them. Are you not of more value than they? And which of you, by being anxious, can add a single hour of his span of life? And why are you anxious about clothing? Consider the lilies of the field, how they grow. They neither toil nor spin, yet I tell you, even Solomon in all his glory was not arrayed like one of these. But if God so clothes the grass of the field, which today is alive and tomorrow is thrown into the oven, will he not much more clothe you, O you of little faith? Therefore, do not be anxious, saying, What shall we eat, or what shall we drink, or what shall we wear? For the Gentiles seek for all these things, and your heavenly Father knows that you need them all. But seek first the kingdom of God and his righteousness, and all these things will be added to you. Therefore, do not be anxious about tomorrow, for tomorrow will be anxious for itself. Sufficient for the day is its own trouble. This is the word of God. There's a phrase from Ralph Waldo Emerson that travel is a fool's paradise. As he's reflecting on the self, uh, maybe some of you have had the experience where you think that vacation will provide an escape from your troubles, a time to forget about them, uh, but you find that actually wherever you go, there you are, your troubles go with you. And uh, so sometimes vacation is an opportunity to just forget about things and strengthen you so you can go back and address your issues, but we don't always go back and address our issues or sometimes the issues mount up faster than we could address them. And I wonder how many of you have had the experience where you've gone to some place where everything should be wonderful, but you couldn't enjoy it because even though you were able to, to remove yourself from a context, there it is, it's within you. And so there's something in each of us that needs help, that needs healing, that needs guidance, that needs support. The Bible tells a story where things have gone wrong in the world and we're all affected by it. And so we're in a short series where we're looking at four relationships, God, self, others, and the world. In the story of the Bible, these break apart right in the very beginning. Uh, and we see the evidences as we look out into the world, but for each of you, if you just think about your own emotional life or your own aspirations and disappointments, uh, all of us are in need of help, healing, encouragement. So Christianity tells the story of things going wrong, but it also has, as that story, Jesus coming in to bring restoration, to bring life back and to bring renewal, which means that something about Christianity should be bringing repair in all of these areas, including 
to you in your own life. If you become a Christian, it's not simply that now you know God, but through knowing God, the true self starts to come out and that changes relationships and changes how we live in the world. The focus for today is gonna to be the self. Last week we looked at God, the relationship with God, next week with others, and then the last week will be with the world. But today I wanna to ask three questions for your reflection about yourself. Uh, and what is it that God might be uh, inviting you to step forward uh, more towards today? The first question is, where is your heart? Where is your heart? Um, so you probably know I'm not asking a biological question that the next question will not be, where is your gallbladder? Uh, this is uh, not meant to uh, do anything other than have you reflect on yourself. Um, in the Bible, many places where the heart is spoken about, the, it, it really is a picture of uh, more like what we think today about personality or the self or who I am. And uh, modern people think of the heart maybe more as, as where we feel and experience emotions. Certainly emotion is part of the self. But in the Bible, it's more than just that. It's, it's about who we are. It's about identity. And Jesus makes an important point here. Um, which is that we are selves, we are individuals, but, and we have our inner worlds, but ourselves connect with the outer world. And therefore, if your inner person, if, if you are to be healthy, uh, there needs to be an awareness of what you're connecting with. What have you set your heart upon? So in verse 21, Jesus says, where your treasure is, there your heart will also be. So yes, the heart is within you. It's who you are. It's how you're experiencing the world. But, but there are things in the world that offer hope, that offer help, that, that attract you, that draw you, that you desire. And what are the things that we're connecting with? Because whatever they are, our hearts are going to connect. You're, you're bringing things into your life that that's going to shape and affect you and who you are and how you experience things. So where your treasure is, your heart will be. And Jesus is trying to warn us to make sure that we treasure the right things. So one of the, the things that he highlights here is that uh, we have competing desires and sometimes we feel like we're being ruled over by them. And Jesus in verse 24 says, no one can serve two masters. He will hate the one and love the other, or he will be devoted to the one and despise the other. You cannot serve God and money money being a great example, but he might say you may, cannot serve God and relationships. You cannot serve God and managing your own career. He's not talking about not being able to have a life that includes all of these various things in it, but, but what have you set your heart upon where you say, that's my strength, that's my hope, that's what I need, that's what will satisfy me. Jesus is saying is if it's the things of the world, at some point, uh, your devotion to them is going to create a problem with you and God. And that's just going to spill over to all sorts of problems with you, that even if your conscience is clear that you could dismiss God as irrelevant or not existing, uh, the relationship that you then have with the things of the world is affecting you negatively. And Jesus is trying to pull us out of that. And so James, for example, asks the question, what causes fights and quarrels among you? Isn't it these, these passions that are at war within us? And so we know that we have these various desires and we're looking for something to unify them. One of the reasons Jesus highlights money as an issue, it's not the only one, but, but money promises to satisfy various desires, which is where all of us can be prone to 
a certain kind of love of money, even if we're very different. We may have different fundamental drives. And if you want pleasure, money is a good way to it. You could buy the great vacation or the, uh, the expensive delicious foods. If you want power, money is a great way to it because then you could uh, hire staff and be in charge. If you want security, money is a great way to that. If I have enough money, I don't need to worry about the future. So you may have various desires and money seems to be one thing that resolves so many if you have more money. But Jesus is saying, actually, there's a lot that gets left out. And if that's your ultimate hope of, of where you think you'll be satisfied, where your ultimate hope should be, you're not connecting there. And then at the end of the day, you will experience that internal conflict, those divisions, and it will make external uh, divisions. So, uh, for example, here we're talking about money. Why do we want money? Well, so, some people want status, respect. For example, money is a good means to that, but money's not the only means to it, which is where you don't need to be materialistic, but you could still be um, uh, trapped in these ways. And so there may be an altruistic career where you don't make a lot of money, um, but you choose that career because where you will be satisfied is with the respect, the appreciation. And other people think that the, res the respect and appreciation will come from just having a lot of money that then people will uh, appreciate my car. We may all, all be driven by similar kinds of desires. Um, again, for some it's comfort, for some it's control. Uh, but let's take, for example, if respect is something that you really want, if you want um, people to really admire you and appreciate you. Uh, a lot of workplaces uh, have their own culture and at some point, wherever you work, ethical issues will come up. Uh, and your coworkers may say at the end of the day, we want money. And you may work in an environment where that's normative, you're an investment bank or something like that. But in your mind, actually, yes, money is good. Of course, you're glad to get paid well, but there's something more you want. Actually, the money is not the important thing, but the respect, the appreciation is there. And so an ethical uh, issue comes up where then uh, your coworkers wanna do something that fits their ethic, which is our job, is to uh, acquire as much money for us and those we represent as possible, and therefore we're gonna do something that others might think is wrong, but it, that doesn't trouble us. Uh, but your conscience says, I don't know that I should do that. Now, if you really want money, uh, maybe you're willing to compromise and go along with it, but what do you do if what you really want is respect and appreciation, and you feel like you're the one that needs to resist, you need to speak out? then the risk is that you actually, in doing the right thing, and it may be because you have a Christian conscience, if you're a Christian, and you trust that God will provide, but you speak up, and there it is. You, you are now a threat to what, is, uh, what the plans are, and therefore, they need to get you out. And the getting you out may also come with some unkind things said about you to make sure that the spotlight doesn't become on us and the wrongdoing, but we will discredit you as you go. And you're partly wanting that environment to be a place of respect and encouragement. And now you have a moral conviction, and for those of you who are Christian, a Christian conviction to not do what everyone is doing. Now you have a problem. God, I'm being faithful and I am you are bringing into my life what I don't want. I wasn't here for the greed. I'm trying to resist those things, but now I'm the subject 
of slander. Now, uh, me, the one who not only worked hard and was upright, uh, I'm the one that now is, is having difficulty being hired because word is going around, don't touch that person. And what they mean by that, that they're not saying is, don't touch that person because he's going to expose you. But what they're saying is, don't touch that person because you can't count on her. And so that creates this issue of, in that moment, who are you serving? Um, are you angry with God because your job fell apart, because he called you to a higher standard of anger, a uh, higher st uh, standard of integrity? Uh, it's funny how our minds work that way. Rather than being angry with injustice, rather than being angry with corruption, our theology that God is over all can leave us angry with God. God, I'm, I'm, I'm being faithful, and this is the payment. And so Jesus is trying to say, look, uh, following God is going to have challenges, but, but, but if your heart is there, you will be spared a lot. Does that mean life is going to be easy? No, because we live in a world where everyone's running after different things, and you yourself have these varied desires. Um, but look at the symptoms of, of the alternative way. Yes, by serving God, there will be sacrifices, and you're just going to have to trust his future provision, and that's going to test you. But the alternative is uh, just to watch for what happens when your heart is set on things. And so Jesus warns us about moth and rust and thieves. If your heart is set on money, you'll be worried about people stealing your things. If your heart is set on your good looks, you'll be uh, worried about aging. If your heart is set on um, impressing people with something like a dance career, um, at some point you won't have the ability to do what you're doing. And so if that's your ultimate identity, your ultimate meaning, then, then it takes control over your lives. Jesus is, is not saying you have to disconnect from the world in some weird monastic way, but that if your heart is in the right place, if you treasure the right thing, then these other things you need could come into your life. Maybe not all of them, but they could be there in a healthy way. But the thing is, if you're missing what's truly valuable, then those things are, are you're going to be subject to the forces of corrosion and thieves. And so one of the symptoms here is anxiety. Jesus moves from this into worrying about what we're going to eat and what we wear. And for contemporary people in New York City, I think a lot of us are convicted to say we so assume that the basics are provided, that we're not worried about what we're going to eat and what we wear, um, but we're worried about whether or not in two years you'll get into med school or you're worried about whether or not uh, the economy will affect your bonus. And so the kinds of things that Jesus is saying here is like, actually, you should be free of anxiety because God will give you food and clothing. And we so much take food and clothing, for example, uh, for, for granted, but it doesn't mean we're free of anxiety. Because whatever we set our hearts on creates a new standard, and therefore there's no getting around our being anxious people. Money is one example, and it's a great one. It's not the only one. Um, but what's, what's good about it is, is uh, you know, you trace back anxiety in life, and most of us will find that we, we give money far more power than it it should have in our lives. And so I, for example, I don't live a, a, a particularly externally materialistic life. I don't own a Maserati. Uh, you will not see me uh, boasting of all sorts of great possessions. Uh, it would be easy for me to think I'm free of the love of money. But one curious thing is I'm getting older. I still hope I have a good number of years before retirement, but, but retirement is becoming a little bit more of a reality, not, re not the uh, act of retiring, but the wondering how I should be planning for it now. And to plan well, which the advice is start right away. You know, if you're six and you've got allowance, you need to put that in an index fund. 
Uh, that's really a compounding interest. And so now when you're my age, and, you, and, and the, one of the questions is, well, how long do you think you're going to live? That would help me plan. How am I supposed to answer that question? How long do I think I'll live? And so what, what the best I have is sort of, you know, just the, the life expectancy for men in the United States, I think somewhere around 78. Uh, but there I, I, I need to plan for a margin of error that's more than two or 3% on that. I might live to 90 and I may not make it to 60. So how do you plan for retirement uh, with this unknown? And so, and that's anxiety comes from the unknown. So I, uh, on the one hand, have a fear if I'm not careful and sacrificial now, thinking that 85 is reasonable, that 90th year may be really miserable uh, if I have no money. But then, you know, there is the other part that it would be nice to order a glass of wine with dinner at a restaurant, but, um, if I knew I was gonna die at 60, you know, even though the glass of wine at the restaurant costs the same as the bottle in the store, I would be willing to do that. But right now it feels like I should pass in the wine to make sure I'm still having dinner when I'm 90. Uh, so there's this unknown that then is anxiety producing. I find myself trying to solve this unsolvable pro problem. I have no idea how long I will live. How will I plan for that? And while I could try to convince many of you that I'm free of the love of money, uh, I experience anxiety. It's there uh, because money is tied to security, to well-being, and to various things. And so Jesus wants to make sure that he says, look, tomorrow has enough troubles for itself. So is the answer, don't plan for retirement so you don't experience anxiety? No, anxiety is, is, is not the problem. It's, it's a symptom. So you plan for a retirement, but you don't worry about 30 years from now because you don't know what tomorrow will bring. And Jesus is pulling us closer to say to the degree that anxiety is in your life, you're, you're, you're going beyond the bounds of what you can control, and therefore your heart is set on something that's not serving you well. So the question is, where is your heart? Jesus in verse 33 says, seek first the kingdom of God and his righteousness. These things will be added to you. It's not that we're wrong for wanting to have comfort or to have uh, a, a certain measure of security or to be able to enjoy life but what's first in your life? And Jesus is saying, if it's not clear that you've set your heart on what is truly valuable, you will not only have anxiety, but you will have all sorts of other troubles. So where is your heart is one question. Here's a second question for you. How are your eyes? So in the middle of this teaching about the heart and about possessions and about God's provision, he has this short, uh, illustration about eyes. And so the question is, how are your eyes? It's verses 22 to 23, where he, he refers to the eye as the lamp of the body. So he says, if your eye is healthy, your whole body will be full of light. But if your eye is bad, your whole body will be full of darkness. If then the light in you is darkness, how great is the darkness? So again, he's asking a question, what are you looking to? What have you set your heart on? But where are your sights set? What is your hope? And the eye being a lamp of the body, uh, he's not just talking about the eyeball and how you know we have neurons and uh, perceiving light, but he's, he's talking about sort of this way that, that the self, who you are, is engaging the world. We take in the world, so much of the data of the world through what we see, but we also communicate to the world um, with our eyes. And so, for example, darkness in us affects uh, 
are eye contact. If you are overwhelmed with shame, it's hard to make eye contact while you're talking to someone, even if you know nobody has the power to read minds. They can't see into your life. They don't know your story. But it could be so overwhelming that there's a sense in which I can't, I don't want to keep looking just in case the person could see beyond the facade I'm trying to maintain. Or when you look somebody in the eyes and you could see that they're afraid and it's kind of not how to tell, but, but there's something about the eye being a window in. Uh, but for us, for the self, the, the eye is, these are the windows by which we take in the world and we're notoriously bad at, at gathering and collecting uh, the data of the world. There's so much, there's so many pieces. What is it you recognize? You can't take it all in. And there seems to be a correlation between what we're seeing and what we're experiencing and what we're understanding and what's going on inside of us that shapes when we notice things. Did you ever have that where, you know, somebody gets, uh, somebody you know uh, is diagnosed with an illness that you hadn't heard of, and you've never heard of it, and as soon as you hear of that, next week you hear about it on the news, and uh, it comes, you know, mysteriously it shows up on all your social media feeds. I don't know how that happens. Uh, but all of a sudden, here's something that's been there all along. You've had no awareness of it. As soon as you have an awareness, you see it. Um, what are you seeing in the world and how is it connected to what's happening within you? One of the reasons I think Jesus warns us about being judgmental, being hostile, he says, by the measure you use, it will be measured to you. And therefore, make sure your measure is good. And so the advantage of being a gracious person, if grace is thoroughly in you, then not only are you able to be kind to others, but but if it's part of your operating system, you're able to deal with your own imperfections. But most of us have judgment. Uh, and what we try to do is we try to reserve it for others and spare ourselves. And so I could hate them, but love myself. But it doesn't work that way. If that's the measure you use, at some point, there's you. You have to be alone with yourself. And if you've learned to, to be oriented to the world, to find the flaw and hate the person with the flaw, uh, as much comfort as it takes to keep seeing them at some point, you're not going to see them. And then there's you, the person that finds flaws and hates. And so Jesus is asking about where our hearts are, but he's also wondering how we're engaging the world. What do you set your heart upon? Because how you see the world and what you're taking in is affecting everything, who you are, how you relate to the world, what choices you make. I, I saw a quote this week by a, a writer, Anais Nin, and it says, uh, she said, we don't see things as they are. We see them as we are. Uh, and her story is interesting. I don't know the context for that quote, but she's an interesting figure in that she, uh, she wrote a lot of journals so people know all sorts of things about her, including uh, a lack of integrity. So for example, there was one time that she was married to two different men, one in California, one in New York, and they didn't know about each other. And she carried in her pocketbook two checkbooks because she had two different legal names. She had prescriptions from different doctors with, uh, with uh, different names on them. And she carried in her bag what she called the lie box, which was index cards, where because she would tell people different things, she was so overwhelmed trying to keep track of it that she needed to write things down so she could keep her stories straight. So I myself don't know how this affected her, but I think when she says we don't see things as they are, we see them as we are, my guess is she was in tune. She was sharing something of her experience. If I'm somebody who is willing to, to manipulate another person, um, that's probably, I'm, I'm gonna experience the world more that way. If I'm somebody that is gonna be 
quick to be judgmental. I'm gonna experience the world more that way. Jesus is saying uh, below the surface, we need to renew all of who you are because how you see God, how you see the world is gonna affect what you're perceiving. And so on this question about what you're seeing, Jesus is like, if you see money as having full value, if you set your heart on it, you're gonna get a skewed perspective on the world. Those desires, whatever you think it is, money will give you. Uh, will never be satisfied, and you're just going to wind up having more and more of a fractured, broken internal existence. And so what are you looking at? What do you see? Well, the world is mixed. The Bible describes the world as mixed with good and evil. We, we need to see both of those. We need to be wise to resist what's harmful. We need to not be pulled in. We need to not be harmed. Uh, but we also need to recognize that good is there. Um, our judgment winds up getting skewed. And so one of the things Jesus is saying is you need a light in your body. If there's darkness uh, taking over the inside of you, it's changing what you see, what you experience, and it will make it impossible for you to be helped by God, by people, by the resources of the world. So how are your eyes? For example, if you're in a season right now where you're having trouble seeing good in your life, in yourself, or in the world, um, because that's your perception, it feels probably the most true thing. And it's important then to have an outside voice like the voice of Jesus to say, if you're seeing nothing good, there's, there's darkness, there's something that's not right. So don't give in to that as believing that's fundamentally true. Because Jesus says, I am the light. He's the one who comes and he gives sight to the blind. He's trying to show us something so that we will see differently. So where our hearts are and where our hearts have been affects how we see. Here's, here's the third question. The third question is, who provides for you? And, and in a, on a day where the topic is ourself, many of us think, because the world has failed me, maybe you feel that God has failed you because things are failing you. All I could count on is myself. Um, but that's part of the problem. We cut ourselves off from seeing, and there's a darkness in us, and we're not strong enough to face the great things of of, of life, the challenges, the opportunities, but certainly, for example, something like death. How can you face that? We don't have the power for that. Uh, for the self to be good, for there to be a light in our lives, for you to be okay with who you are and to be thriving, you need to be connecting with something outside of yourself. And that's what Jesus is saying is be careful who you're connecting with. If money is your plan for future provision, or if it's the applause of your friends, or if it's a certain uh, institution that you have an association with, as long as you're there, you're safe, you're respected, you're getting what you want. Jesus says, look for the signs of anxiety, of burnout, of discouragement. And those things are to remind us that there's, there, there are these deep desires in us that we need to connect with something that will give life to us. And Jesus is trying to show us that he will give that to us. So in verse 25, when he says, is, is not life more than food and the body more than clothing? He's highlighting, at least to a degree, our superficiality. When we see clothing, it represents more than just a garment, but somebody with very good clothes has good tastes, but somebody with very expensive clothes has a lot of money. Uh, somebody very fashionable is cool and worth hanging out with. So when you see clothing, what do you see? We, we, we always impart some meaning to it. But Jesus is saying, but, you, but you're not seeing with any depth. Don't you know that life itself is more than this, than food and clothing? There's more that you're not seeing. Are you looking for life? 
Well, don't look for it in what you can buy. Don't look for it in what other people are running after. If that's what you're doing, you're not seeing clearly. Uh, there's, something, there's something wrong with your eyesight. And what happens is we wind up then at some point, if we've run after the things of the world, having trouble seeing meaning with anything, seeing purpose, seeing hope, seeing relevance. What Jesus is saying is, uh, if you're there, know that there's something outside of you. There is uh, one who will provide for you. And that's going to help you to see what uh, otherwise people are not able to see. Jesus came with signs that the kingdom was coming and he healed the blind. And he said that he was the light of the world. He's helping us to see what is truly of value so that we could set our hearts on the right things so that our hearts can be healed and renewed and that we can have life. I think one of the important um, opportunities we have to learn from this passage is something that's subtle, but I think profound. And when Jesus says, look, you can't serve two masters, you can't serve God and money, and he could go on and say, you can't serve three masters, God, money, and your good looks, or whatever it is you can add to the list. Um, it's interesting that his application is not to so remember God is your master and serve him. That would be fine. That wouldn't be unlike Jesus to say Jesus' title is Lord. That's a kind of a political kind of title. Um, the, the Bible, including the New Testament, is not shy about using the language of serving. There's nothing wrong with the language of serving. But in this context, Jesus doesn't say you can't serve God and money. Um, you'll hate one and love the other, so make sure God is your master. He says make sure money is not your master, but remember that God is your father. And that difference reorients in so many ways. Jesus is coming and saying, you will set your hearts on things and serve them, and they will use you for all that you can give, and you will have nothing left. But that is not what God is like. Yes, he is a master, the creator of the heavens and the earth, but you don't serve him for what he can do for you. Uh, that's the problem in us. We relate to the world where we are called to love God and to love people, but we love things. And so if we love God and love people, we have the opportunity to use the things of this world. But if we love the things of this world, we will use God and we will use people. And then we'll find it's just us. And uh, are you confident you can take care of all of your needs? A stable self, a, a properly formed identity recognizes there's something outside of us that we need. So in verse 32, speaking of the Gentiles, these are the people who don't know God, who are not part of God's community. He says, the Gentiles seek after all these things, and your heavenly Father knows that you need them all. So look, this is not some weird mysticism. He knows you need to eat. He knows that you will be satisfied if you like what you're doing for work. He knows that you will enjoy a good meal. He knows you need these things. But people who don't know God run after these things and they become their gods. You're called to know God as a father and to trust his provision. And then that will bring the kind of transformation. If you look at Jesus himself, how this worked itself out, his identity as the son, the son of God, who came to make the father known. And you look at how um, uh, he assumed, and we're looking at Matthew 6, but you look at this whole section where he assumes the goodness of the Father, the provision, that even in, in our current moment, if we're suffering, we know that we can trust God. That confidence certainly was part of under, uh, what undergirded Jesus, the human being who had to face enormous things like betrayal, like uh, opposition, but ultimately going to the cross. 
Um, one of the remarkable things that, that shows how different Jesus is when he was being crucified is he prays for the forgiveness of those crucifying him. And that should give us a window into the very heart of this person under the worst possible circumstances, what comes out. So he comes with a message of forgiveness and he's praying for forgiveness to the ones who are crucifying him. But for those of you familiar with the verse, um, that first word is important. His prayer is, Father, forgive them for they don't know what they're doing. And he's not saying don't hold them accountable because they're ignorant, because what they're doing deserves judgment. But he's saying there's such darkness that they're uh, completely misjudging everything. And I who came to give life, they're taking life from rather than receiving it. And so his prayer for their forgiveness is because of the confidence there's a, a father who cares for his children, even the children who mess up, even the children who make mistakes. So in calling upon the Father, what is it that allowed Jesus to love those people and to be faithful to a father who had put him in a situation, it would appear, where he is suffering? And it's that confidence. If Jesus has confidence in the thorough goodness of the Father, if the Father, will con if the father would possibly consider forgiving those who would do this to him, why would the Father abandon me in the process of what I am doing for him? I don't know if that's what Jesus was thinking, but, but in, in the, the health of his heart and his eyes and who he was, there was a consistency such that Jesus' confidence that the Father watched over him enabled him uh, to trust that Father and his provision, even though he did not have an easy or prosperous life. This week, I had a conversation with a guy who was an athlete when he was younger. Um, and one of the things he said is he said that he worked so hard on the field and uh, occasionally his father would come. And when he saw his father, he would give his all. And if they won and he did something great, his father would be so excited. Uh, and, and that was something he remembered. And then as an adult, he became a Christian. And he found that he had took on a certain way of life. How do you uh, live while well, you work hard and you, you go out there and you hope that the Father sees all the great things that you're doing and that he will be pleased and that he will tell you. That was amazing, I saw that. And then he went through a period of burnout. His life fell apart. And what he found was that God the Father was with him when he was failing. God the Father was with him when he did not want to be seen. And then he realized there was something with the relationship with his earthly father that wasn't good. His father was only there when he was succeeding. And he assumed God was like that father. And then he realized that God's fatherly nature is so much different. He's the father that we all long to have. He's the father who provides, who cares, who sees. And for this guy that I was talking to, it transformed his whole life, including his earthly relationship with his father, um, but also his Christian life when he realized, I don't need to perform. My anxiety, my tiredness doesn't mean I'd need to push through, but I need to, to remember where my heart is. You know, it's interesting throughout the Old Testament, God refers to his people as his treasured possession. He sends Jesus into the world because we belong to him and he loves us. And when we were not faithful and we're, when we were in darkness, he came at great cost to himself because he treasures us. And Jesus says, no, what do you treasure? If it's earthly things, they'll be destroyed. But if you set your heart 
to where the Father is, uh, well, then nobody can touch that. You can't be separated from that, and that will restore your soul. Then you'll finally understand who you are, what it means to be a person who's currently flawed, but is growing, a person who uh, has things for which you need forgiveness, but God is granting that grace. God is bearing that. God is with you. And you who desire to do good things that you don't know if you can realize, God has good things for you because he's a father and he cares for you. And so, so here's just a final, uh, one of the reasons I think that this is helpful. When we struggle as individuals, um, how do we manage our anxiety or our discouragement? You know, there are various tools, various techniques, and we should take advantage of them. But, you know, one of the ironies about being self-centered is that it doesn't work. The more you're concerned and obsessed about yourself, and the more you cut yourself off from God and people, uh, the more you bear anxiety and frustration and resentment. And so there's something strange about, about uh, your identity, yourself, needing to be connected to something outside of it. The problem is when we're overwhelmed with our self-centeredness, uh, and we hate ourselves and we're discouraged. Um, one of the techniques that you should try to apply is to um, be compassionate to yourself, to, to dialogue with yourself about um, your being good. I, no, I am good. I can do this. And that, that's valuable. I'm not discouraging you from doing that. But I think most of us have been in a place where you're discouraged enough, you're in tune with your own unreliability enough that if you're the one telling yourself you'll be okay, you don't believe yourself. And one of the things about Christianity is to say, but if you want to know that you're okay, there's a message that's not generated in your mind or from somebody who is an expert writing a book who has never met you telling you that you should tell yourself that you're okay. And your thought is, this person doesn't know me, so it's not a true message. Jesus is saying, you know you're okay because the Father sees your problems before you do, and yet he loves you. He's invested that he came and he calls you into his light. He's going to repair. He's going to help you. So now the self-message that we have is not, I'm great because I want to be great. But actually, there's a father who loves me. The, the message of Jesus is, if you trust me, you'll be okay. The Christian can tell herself or himself, I will be okay. Not simply because it's a positive word or because it's what I want to believe, but it's the, the word of the God who is truthful. The word of God who backed up that message by the cost to himself. And therefore, there's something we have for ourselves to say, I can be okay, not because of what I've done or what I promise I will do, but because of the grace of the Father who loves me. And if I set my heart there, then tomorrow's troubles don't need to overwhelm me. But today I could rest in that reality. It's true. If you're a Christian, you can say truly, I'll, I'll be okay. And, and not because of, uh, of, of whatever your plan is to do next, but because the Father will provide for you. And that assurance then frees you to be yourself, to find out who you are, to stop having to convince people you're better than you are, to stop making excuses for yourself, where you could really say, actually, if God knows everything and I'm okay, then if I have that Father who will remain with me, um, that's where healing begins. That's where renewal begins. That's where the integrity begins, that you can put yourself out there honestly, and then you can start to see the world more like what it is, that the darkness in you will not overwhelm you, uh, but the darkness is being driven out by the light of Christ. That's what Jesus is encouraging us to. So as regards to the relationship with yourself, the relationship with God will inform that, but you will come alive if you 
hold to that. Let me pray for us. Our Father, we're here as a collection of individuals. We have our own stories. And uh, Lord, one thing we have in common is we all struggle. We all have fear. We've all made mistakes. Um, but Lord, you have assembled us today and you invite us week by week to come and to learn of your ways and to be in your presence. You are one who promises to provide. And so Lord, uh, do a work of healing and a work of light and a work of grace so that in us today, we would find out who we truly are as your children. And I pray for any who are struggling to grasp that, that your spirit would, would remove the clouds, uh, would shine light so that we would all experience hope today, that we would be free from some of the anxieties, uh, some of the, uh, the difficulties that are happening in our inner turmoil. Lord, may this be a day of uh, worshiping you and finding rest in you. And may this be a week of greater hope where we would see your goodness. Help us with that, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen.